Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, June the 7th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. And if you want to send me a note, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Welcome in, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Uh, Hard to, sometimes again, as we go through so much craziness and unrest in the country right now, I know it might be hard to take a step away and get into the candy land, I said, of of life, and, and I've said that a couple of times over the past two months or so, but I guess I'll give it a try, and joining me in just a little bit, well, actually, he joined me earlier, but you'll hear a conversation from national baseball writer of the Wall Street Journal, Jared Diamond. Jared's been on the show before, former beat reporter for the Mets, former beat reporter for the Yankees, has an interesting new book out, Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution. Over the course of the last few years, uh, we've had Jeff Passan on, who uh, went into the uh, the book The Arm and uh, looked at Tommy John surgery. Uh, there's a book out I've talked about. We haven't had them on the show, but we've talked about the MVP machine, a book that came out last year, which really went into how teams are uh, not only evaluating players, but how players are rebuilding themselves, which connects a little bit to this, uh, because there's that, you know, Justin Turner reinvention, which connects into the Swing Kings. But Jared has a lot to talk about. And of course, we'll get into the whole situation between the Players Association and Major League Baseball and how we can eventually... Uh, this summer have baseball, but it's starting to look really ominous, and it's also starting to look like we're going to get a season that we just quite simply aren't going to be happy with. I also want to give, and I'll get to that in a minute, I also want to give a quick shout-out 
I was uh, had a chance to be on a couple of podcasts this past week. Well, one was FamSportsNY.com. The guys over there, you can check them out at, at FamSportsNY on Twitter. Go over there at about the 27-minute mark from the last podcast. You get the chance to hear me talk about a lot of things. Talk about the Universal DH. Talk about my thoughts about the Mets, about Major League Baseball, some of the things you might hear right now. But not all of them. There's a, a couple of little nuggets in there that you may actually want to uh, take a listen to. Anyway, you should check it out. They do some really good work, really quality podcast, and uh, famsportsny.com. Also, it's not out yet, but uh, my good friends over there, Ari and Noah, newyorkbaseballpodcast.buzzsprout.com. There's going to be uh, a podcast coming out there. Now, they recorded me on Zoom, so I don't know if you're actually going to be able to see me, and I I wasn't ready for that one. So if you do happen to see the video, you're going to get to see me with all my gray hair, because I haven't had a, a haircut in a thousand years, uh, very long hair, uh, my best slick back Pat Riley look that I could put together with the amount of hair that I have, and uh, you guys could have at it. If you happen to actually see physically what I look like right now, I'm ready for it, and I'm not going to go uh, bananas over it. But they, they did a nice job, Ari and Noah, uh, passionate guys. Uh, they've actually got some interesting guests that they've had in the past, Ferguson Jenkins, former Hall of Famer, former Cub Hall of Famer, uh, and and check that out. So New York Baseball Podcast, uh, buzzsprout.com. Uh, very uh, uh, honored to be on both of these podcasts because anytime somebody you know wants to hear from me, because I'm not a celebrity, of course, uh, and I get a chance to help them out, uh, it just uh, goes back to when I started. And at times, even now, when I have uh, some really good people, good people in media, good people in sports that uh, take their time to come on this show and, and give not only me, but you a chance to hear their thoughts. And as we con- continue, and I said this, and I don't know which podcast it was, uh, I, I, I said this, we continuing to try to connect the media with the fans and the teams and everybody trying to bring this thing together to get the, uh, the most sensible story out there, not the most uh, charged story that gets the reaction. So anyway, check those podcasts out. And away we go here. So where are we at with Major League Baseball and the Players Association? And I I don't know if I want to go through all the details here. You guys, if you want to read a great breakdown, I know it's a paid site. I know they recently did a ton of layoffs, which is unfortunate. Not all that unpredictable for a, a private equity venture capital startup, but the athletic Ken Rosenthal did a good breakdown of where everything's at and the players... Not only Tony Clark and Dan Halam, but uh, you know Scott Boris as well in his situation here, and how he's trying to insert himself into everything when it comes to the uh, negotiations. But be that as it may, I think it comes back to something that I've been talking about very simply over the last couple of months. I am not in the position to say that baseball is going to kill themselves if they miss a season. It's not good. The timing is bad. I don't think they're done forever. It's not. It's a blow. It's no different than what you're seeing going on in the country. The country's taken a huge blow and continues to take a huge blow. But do I think the country's going to crumble? No, I don't think the country's going to crumble. And I don't think Major League Baseball is going to crumble. None of this, though, for both the country and baseball over the last couple of months is good. It's not something that you sign up for voluntarily. And it's not something that won't take a tremendous amount of work to come out of. And there won't be a lot of naysayers on both sides that are going to try to 
give everybody, especially how the media is going to come after these guys, give everybody the verbal swords to go after Major League Baseball, to go after the sport and try to bury the sport. And uh, look, the competitive sports are going to sit back. They're going to let it happen because in their minds, it'll be good you know, for them. And they're not going to jump into the fray here. You're going to have some kind of NBA season, which I still think the NBA season is going to be something of less than acceptable end result, best they can do. Uh, NHL, same thing. Uh, NFL will come in in the fall, and we'll see what the world is like there. And they may be the, the, like I've been saying, they're the lucky ones. They've been whistling past the graveyard the whole time, and and they won't even have uh, a season other than the draft interrupted. Maybe, you know, depending on how things transpire over the next 90 to 120 days and what have you. Baseball cannot come out with a 50-game schedule. And and throw that out there just to have a season. I, I I just don't know. I mean, that's that's the equivalent of the beginning of April to the middle of May. It's an enhanced World Baseball Classic. That's really what it is. It's going to have no impact in terms of the history of the game. It'll be basically forgotten about and looked at with a huge asterisk the whole time. I mean, we'll never get past that. You think Roger Maris had an asterisk? You think in 1994... People look at and maybe throw away 1981, the steroid era, 1998, and the home run chase. You think those things are looked at with a dubious eye? I don't know of anybody who is going to look at a 50-game season. And whatever the team that winds up winning, wins a division, wins a pennant, wins a World Series. I mean, will they even put those banners up in their stadium and feel good? Will fans feel good looking up every game, 81 home games to that? I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. And maybe that'll change when... It's all said and done. And we're staring at that right now. We really are. What the two sides need to do, and this is because you have new negotiators, you have a head of the union and Tony Clark, who was, uh, I guess, a little bit asleep at the wheel of the last negotiations. And I think that you're seeing with the Players Association how detrimental Michael Weiner and his death has been to them in the transition to new leadership. Everybody needs to prove themselves because you have new players at the table. And while they're trying to do that, I think they're missing the big point, which is where the sport economically is going to be. Everybody keeps focusing on regional sports networks, a a whole bubble that I've predicted will burst eventually. I keep saying it. Cord cutting, it's something that is going to be more and more talked about. Anybody who's listening in this audience, I'm guaranteeing it's not me going out on a limb. You're watching less cable, more Netflix, more streaming, more alternative uh, ways to watch whatever you want to watch, including sports, whether it be Amazon, Hulu, whatever. They're not going away, those things. They're not. Some people, I wouldn't be surprised if they're not watching the sport live and they're going on their MLB.com app. And they're watching the the condensed version of the game. Is a lot of ways to consume things now, and the idea. And I personally, I'm not afraid to say it. I mean, I still have a cable package. I'm paying two hundred seventy dollars a month, and I'm not really happy about that. But I want to keep some of the channels, some of the uh, premium channels. I want to have a really good internet. You're kind of stuck. There's no competition. It's either you have FiOS, Cablevision, or you go the Dish way. I mean, I could do one of the three. I don't really think, and I haven't done deep research, so maybe I'm off base saying this. I don't think there's a lot difference between the three. But the but the point is, is that there are options. And I really believe these regional sports networks and their value and the rights and all the money that's being paid out. 
that's an annuity that's not forever. I think every every team which is financed a lot of debt against it is thinking it's forever. And then you add in not only the fact that you can't have fans, which is 40% of the income, you add in the fact that fans are going to be hesitant. Whatever the government says, whatever you believe, there is going to be a hesitation to gather in groups. You're going to have different opinions, different things that people say, and you have to respect the fact and they have to understand the fact that it's not just for now. It's not just till the end of the baseball season. It might be for a little bit. For some people, it might be until there's a vaccine, which we don't know when that's happening. They may not want to gather. There's going to be certain age groups that are not going to want to go out and gather, that are still going to be careful for a long time. These are baseball fans. And then there's the disposable income component. Yeah, I know the stock market is jumping up, but let's face it, any of you in the audience that's listening, that doesn't mean that things are better for your average small business, your average person, your average worker. You know, that's a different economic indicator. It doesn't have anything to do with cash flow and people having to put themselves on a budget, especially if they're uncertain that their job is going to be there, that their company is going to be there, that their company's not going to have some kind of downsize. You know, anybody that is relying on offices coming back, if their job is connected or their business is connected on offices coming back, that might be gone for good. So you put all these things in the economic pot together, and you know even when that 40% of the revenue comes back, it will be down. It has to be down, especially in cities where they're not going to compete, or even if they change and, and, and try to compete, even in a 50-game season, even next year, if they say, hey, we need to put something out there that at least looks like while we're rebuilding, we can compete. It's not all of a sudden going to generate 25, 30, 40,000 people in a stadium. I mean, you might see some horrible, even with no restrictions, no restrictions on attendance, you might see some really pathetic ballpark shots. And I'm not talking about Miami. Not just talking about Miami right now. So both of these sides have to realize, yes, if you whatever you do now may impact you in your negotiations for a new labor agreement next year. It's all simple negotiations. You have people at the top that are for the very first time in this who may be basically playing for their jobs, for lack of a better word. You know, Tony Clark might be in this sense, in a business sense, playing for his job. I mean, you think that if they have a bad deal, you think he's going to stick around and run that uh, a group? I don't think so. I don't think so. So, you know, there's there's that there's always that competitive component to all of this. But if you are in the and I and I've seen these straw polls on the internet. Most people are anti-owner. Most people are saying, and I have the question, how is it that at 50 games you could break even or make money, but at 82 games or 81 games you could lose a billion dollars? I'm not smart enough and I don't have access to the numbers to to say that that's accurate or inaccurate. I have no idea. I do know it sounds like that most of the RSN dollars have been redacted, which tells you there's a big component of revenue that's not part of it, but it also could be how they allocate the money. You know, as you go out and you put a balance sheet together, you know, money has to be allocated in different ways. You have to at least give them, even if you hate the owners, the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, not everything they're telling you is complete nonsense. And if a billion dollars is what they're going to lose for a, a half a season, that's a serious amount of money. And if you're telling me that only three teams are going to make money and uh, tells you how bad the debt financing might be outside of those three teams, and 
you know, is it out of the question that teams go out of business? I mean, the Oakland Athletics have already missed payments on their stadium. I mean, these are the kind of things that happen for the American Basketball Association. I know I'm throwing out wild ideas. So you have to at least put that out there. And for the players, if you think for a minute that you are immune to what the rest of the country, you are a working member of the United States, you're a working citizen, even though you're a very wealthy one, even though that your average salary of half a million to plus dollars is more than a Everybody, a lot of people in this audience will never see that yearly salary, myself included. We'll never see that kind of money. You think if you're immune to that, well, what's going on? Well, I got another thing coming for you. You're not. Everybody's going to take a hit. And they're already saying, well, I'm taking a hit. I'm, I'm losing half my salary. I'm, I'm doing half the job. And I think everybody in this audience would say, I, if I'm losing half my salary, I'm only going to give you half the job. If you're asking me for more than, the, more than that, you know, why would I do that? Well, that's life right now. I mean, it's not a great situation. And I think a third of the pie for half of the work, in a lot of ways, even though it's clearly less than their value, might be what you have to do to have an income going forward. Really, it might be something you have to do. Because if you kill the golden goose now, and a 50-game season to me is as slap on the face as sitting home, it's just bad. It's a bad situation. Both sides have to think of this and say, yes, we hate each other. Very good reasons for the players to hate the owners. And I think there's less of a reason for the owners to hate the players. I think they hate the agents. That's who I think they hate. And there's a lot to that. But if you want your industry to be healthy and you want to have the ability to live to battle another day from a labor negotiations point of view you got to have a a, a, now at this point what are you looking at 72 games if you start i looked at post all-star break the mets post all-star break where a lot of people put that demarcation line as to when their run last year started if you started the same date had a similar type of schedule this year as you did in 2019 you're looking at about 71 72 games still not great less i I thought the most the least amount you could play is 81 and get away with saying this is legit. And this is still probably not legit. But at least with 71, I guess you could kind of hold your nose. Because it's, it's not a half a season mathematically. But you can make the point that from July 12th to the end of the year, the results... It's not like the Mets' second half was thrown out and said, well, does it matter? You know, it did matter. They almost made the playoffs and they were one of the best teams in baseball. So that at least could give you something to hang your hat on as far as enough of a sample size to have a season. But if you're going to have that, you've got to figure this out this week. You know, it's, tomorrow's June 8th, Monday, June 8th. You've got to figure it out. You need, apparently you need 10 days to get the safety protocols in. You need three weeks of spring training, which might not even be enough. And, and you're hoping to, to that your, your players aren't going to injure themselves routines have been destroyed, so you don't have any idea the quality of play you're going to get. Forget all the things you want to say. Well, grow up, you know, suck it up. You're a professional player. Routines are so important to everybody, whether you're commuting to your job or you're playing professional baseball. When you get a process and a routine, it puts a, a calm and a relaxation so that you could perform at your very best. And when that is changed on a dime drastically, the results could be very varied. So 
this is D-Day. And I know that's maybe that's a bad way to put it, especially with the D-Day just passing. This is D-Day. And you need to start making a deal now if you're going to have a season. If you don't have anything, and August 1st is the start date, I, I, they'll still do it because they have the right to Major League Baseball. Um, and I wonder if they do that and they force the 50-game season, will you see significant players say, I'm sitting out to prove a point? Almost their version of their own internal protest. That's even worse. I mean, you would have yourself a real bad situation with that 50-game season, with not everybody on board. So the point here is this. These sides, I'm not here to say gloom and doom. I'm not here to say a canceled baseball season means they can never recover. But it will take a lot of work. Work that is unnecessary. Work that will take a special group of players and a special group of GMs and a special group of owners. And I just don't know if you have that group right now. I just don't know. Maybe you have the players. I don't know if you have the other two. Because I'll tell you what, you trash this season, and then you come back, whatever the kind of may culpa you do, whatever kind of healing you do over the course of the rest of the summer, into the fall, into the off season, and you have a third of the league in 2021 playing the same shtick about, well, I'm building for six years from now, and you wait till you'll see, in a minor league system that who the heck knows what's going to look like. We haven't even gotten to that. We don't have time to get into that. Well, that's not going to fly. And if you think the jokes about those Marlins games are bad, wait till you see that across swaths of the country in, in a ballpark near you. You might have more people in the Long Island Ducks game than in some of these cities. And I think you, and maybe I'm exaggerating and maybe that's a, a silly statement, but I don't think it's too far off. All right. Jared Diamond, national baseball writer, Wall Street Journal. He'll join me in just a minute. Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution. Can't wait to hear what he has to say about that. Uh, also, we'll get into his thoughts about what I have to say and my thoughts on the uh, labor negotiations and a 2020 baseball season. And here's one little thing I'll throw in there. If you read the papers earlier this morning, there was a oral history of Matt Harvey's career with the Mets. It's been 10 years since he was drafted, a very controversial figure. We'll get Jared's thoughts. Who covered Matt, especially during that crazy 2013 run, and what he remembers about Matt Harvey and how he looks back now that Matt Harvey's career is on its life support and it's trying to be revived potentially in uh, South Korea. All right, you're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Mets fans love Bartolo Colon and remember his home run, but what kind of impact did he really have on the club? Michael Stahl, author of the book Big Sexy, Bartolo Colon in his own words, joined us on the podcast and gave us a pretty good idea. I got to speak to Terry Collins over the phone and, and he contributed the story and he says the definition of a professional, he's like Bartolo's right there. One of his early starts in Anaheim where Bartolo just didn't have it and he gave up like back-to-back-to-back home runs, I think, in, like, the first inning. And you know what he did? He took his, he took his licks, and he, he stayed in the game until the fifth inning because the bullpen was, was tired. So, you know, his ERA ballooned up to, like, six or something like that. But, you know, he didn't care. He, he knew it was best for the team, and, and, he, and he wanted to stay in the game. He told Terry after the first inning, he goes, I'm going to get you into the seventh. And he wound up going five, but still, like, that's his, that was his attitude, and that was... 
you know, real um, testament to him. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmentspodcast.com. I'm joined by national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal, Jared Diamond. Uh, he's also the author of a new book, came out a couple of months ago, Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution. You can check out Jared on Twitter, at Jared Diamond. And welcome to the program, Jared, and I'll start with your book. You know, it's a nice compliment to the arm by Jeff Passan, you know, MVP machine. Now you go into the swing, so... Uh, welcome in and uh, crazy time to be uh, not only writing a book, but covering the game. And, and it's a, a really good piece. And I'm, I'm glad you had a chance to join us. Yeah, thanks. This is by far the craziest uh, moment I've had covering baseball, obviously, as we wait to see if there's going to be a season at all this year. So it's, it's pretty wild out there for a lot of reasons. Uh, and before I get to your book on that note, because you brought it up with the baseball season, it, it's a very complex I know it seems easy. Hey, just get back to playing because the nation needs it. There's so much negativity out there. It would be a great way to, you know, get back to some kind of normal. But it's a lot more complicated than that. I I know that everybody hates the owners. I understand that the finances are hard to really wrap your head around. But there's a part of me that says the players and the Players Association and the agents have to understand where we're at economically and how hard it's going to be to drive revenue. Uh, over the next 12 to 24 months in this game, and and maybe the owners have a point. I'm not sure you agree with that, but there's a part of me that wonders do they really understand the economic situation that we're in as a country right now. Uh, I, I think the problem what we, we're looking at here ultimately is decades and decades of mistrust between these two sides that have bubbled over now at the worst possible time. And it's not a surprise. These two sides have hated each other uh, forever. For as long as they've existed, their relationship has been terrible. But there's been this confluence of events in recent years that's led to this moment uh, to where their relationship now is as bad as it has ever been in the history of MLB and the MLB PA. We go back the last couple of years with free agency and the union's belief that teams were not being as competitive as they should be and things of this nature. You factor in that there's this collective bargaining agreement negotiation coming up in less than two years. Uh, And you get to a place where neither side wants to blink, neither side wants to project any sort of weakness ahead of what is going to be an even more contentious negotiation in a little over a year from now. And at the end of the day, what it feels like to me, and I think many people sort of peripheral to the industry, is that the two sides at this moment are not concerned about actually putting a season on as much as they are just winning this deal. Even if winning this deal might hurt them in the long run, you can make a good argument uh, that both sides are hurt dramatically by no season this year. You know, franchise valuations will be affected if there is no season this year. Uh, If franchise valuations go down, player salaries go down. It's just the way things work. Uh, So you would have to imagine that ultimately these two sides realize it is in our best interest to make a deal, but they're so blinded right now by just needing to win right now that I think they're, they're missing the forest through the trees. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and a 50 game season, which I would never have thought was possible even just 10 days ago, seems like a real possibility. And, and as 
as it is, an 82-81 game season, there's going to be a credibility issue with it. Uh, anything less than the 81 strike season, I think, has a credibility issue. But a 50-game season, that's like an enhanced World Baseball Classic. I, again, you take baseball, but how is that even going to look in terms of the sport long term? Not just from the numbers and the history, but uh, does that even hurt the sport as well in the short long term? A 50-game season is not representative. It would not be viewed as legitimate by many fans. I think you have to start playing out, sort of look into the crystal ball and what baseball is going to look like as we move forward. We're heading into a year where at this this moment as we sit here, it seems the best-case scenario is a 50-game season that fans won't consider legitimate, or at least some fans, with a workforce that is agreed. That is, as we sit here right now, that is the best case scenario for baseball in 2020. In that scenario, the the baseball playoffs are going directly up against not just the NFL and college football, but also the NBA playoffs. So you have to imagine, given that, the ratings for the postseason are going to be bad. We then head into next year. We would love to imagine that next year everything is back to normal and we're putting 50,000 people in stadiums every night again. But we don't know that. There's, in fact, a very good chance that we're still not, that perhaps there are still restrictions on large gatherings. And we're in this exact same position again, where owners are once again saying, we're not going to make as much money as we're accustomed to. We're going to lose money. We need concessions. We need to make a deal. Then we have this big fight again. We have then CBA negotiations coming up the year after that. Uh, Add in the fact as well that the NBA seems to be at least considering, if not more than that, transitioning its season permanently starting it in December or even around Christmas to not compete with the NFL, which would mean it's competing more with baseball in the summer. All of these things put together, and I don't mean to sound alarmist, but if there is no season this year, there is no agreement reached. The future of baseball is pretty bleak just over the next couple of years, what it has to deal with. So you hope that, again, that they realize that that there's a way to solve this problem and that make a deal, play 82 games, find out, find a way to do it and sort of live to fight another day. Think about what a charm life. And I have Jared Diamond, national baseball writer, Wall Street Journal with me. Think what a charm life the NFL has. Assuming, let's think positively, that fans can come into the stands in September. There's no huge second wave. There's you know some restrictions maybe, but not a ton. They may be the only sport that whistles past the graveyard on this and doesn't get affected other than the draft. I mean, think about if you're the NFL, how lucky you are, how charmed life you are. And then you have baseball coming in and and think about next year as you talk about, forget about even restrictions. Think about people being hesitant about gathering, even with the government's blessing. Think about economically the disposable income. You think in cities where they're tanking and they're given this uh, marketing ploy, hey, I'm building for the future. You think people are going to come? For a uh, you know a, a, a McDonald's family Sunday, I mean, come on, I mean it's it's really a bad situation, and uh, and it may not be fixable, and it may require baseball really to think out of the box from a marketing perspective, whether it's wiring the guys up like they did in spring training, or somehow having something happen lucky. Just I know that you're going to laugh the the home run race in '98, something that happens that brings people back, and and hardcore fans like myself are always going to be there, but. That's not going to be the way you grow the game in the next 25 years. Yeah, I think we, we can't understate or overstate the significance of the calendar into what's happening here. I don't think there's enough uh, sort of recognition of that. I am thrilled that the NBA 
and the NHL are finding their way back uh, sort of acrimoniously without a big fight. Uh, and I, I think that's great. I cannot wait for the NBA to come back. I can't wait for hockey to come back. But what I think people aren't recognizing when they say, well, why can't baseball come back? Is that baseball had not started its season yet. Baseball had zero revenue come in, uh, and the players have been paid 0% of their salaries. It was much easier for the NBA and NHL to work things out when 85% of salaries had been paid, 90% of salaries had already been paid. Jared Diamond, uh, national baseball writer, Wall Street Journal, joining me. Um, let's get to your book, Jared, uh, Swing Kings. Uh, and a lot of people are going to misunderstand this thinking that it's just about launch angle, it's just about home runs, but it's so much more. I look at it as it's looking back at how the evolution of the swing has come around. It's about uh, coaching and, and new type of coaching and, and maybe challenging the establishment a little bit uh, when it comes to coaching. Uh, there's a lot more than just the launch angle, I, I, I believe. And, and I think I've heard you say already in a couple of interviews and other places that uh, that's, that's maybe the biggest misunderstanding right now. It is. And, and, and this was something that I really wanted to make clear as I've you know, worked on the book, promoted the book, is that to me, well, two things. One, Swing Kings, to me, and it's important to me, it's not a hitting manual. Uh, it's not a technical book. I am not qualified to write a hitting manual. Uh, I wasn't at all interested in writing one, even if I were qualified to. Uh, to me, this is a story about people, the story about innovation. It's a story about uh, a group of fascinating both athletes and coaches who have changed the industry uh, by being creative, by being different, by by being willing to sort of think outside the box at a time when many people weren't. Uh, and that's really what to me it's about. People want to think it's about data, it's about launching, about this and that. To me, it's, it's not about that at all. Those are tools and there's great value in those things for people who work in baseball. But for the average fan, uh, it's not as important. Those are just numbers. What's interesting is how people have sort of changed, how they've made themselves better. Uh, that's what interested me. Everybody talks about J.D. Martinez as maybe that you know, example of someone who could recreate their swing. But if you go back to when you covered the Mets, and and I remember the conversation when Marlon Bird was signed. He was probably one of the best scrap heap pickups that Sandy Alderson had, um, you know, that he signed. And he, you know, the, the 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 philosophy of hitting didn't align with the organization. He wasn't really looked at as positive uh, regarding uh, speaking to other players on the team about it. They wound up trading him and getting him a decent uh, return. Uh, didn't work out the players, but at the time it was a decent return. He's almost like, in a way, the first from a media perspective, the player that I look back when this all started, and uh, I know because of the PEDs, maybe that's not necessarily how it's viewed now, uh, but interestingly enough, I almost feel like that's the genesis here, and, and it's not so much J.D. Martinez, it's Marlon Bird who had the first level of success coming off that scrap heap. That was the case for me. Marlon Bird was, uh, sort of the for me, the beginning of the book. It's, it's, it's sort of where I first decided I wanted to follow this story. It started with Marlon Bird coming out of freaking nowhere to become a stud. And it was so shocking. He signs a minor league deal with the Mets. He was a nobody. Uh, his career seemed over. He's coming off a PED suspension. He's 35 years old. And suddenly this guy has this incredible season doing things 
that were completely foreign to everybody in baseball. It was totally insane. I didn't understand it. I, I wanted to understand more. I was so confused by the idea that someone like Marlon Berg could get so much better. And that, to me, is where Swing Kings really started. Uh, if not for that, I don't think the book would have happened. When you look at the modern swing, which you know talks about hitting the ball in the air, trying to hit with power, less emphasis on uh, you know strikeouts being a bad thing, hitting kind of becomes one size fits all, maybe from a media perspective. And and you'll have a guy like Wallen Garris try it, and and clearly it's not the same because of different reasons, you know, different types of physical builds, different type of players. Uh, that, what do you think of that criticism? Because there is that criticism in the media uh, who are not hitting coaches, who are not science-driven hitting coaches that say, hey, this is a one-size-fits-all. It's ruining the game. It's part of the problem with the game. It's part of the problem why the game is ugly. Uh, is that unfair? Is there some credence to that, especially after you've done extensive research uh, in this book? It's a complicated question, and it's a good question. This is sort of one of the big issues that the game is facing right now is sort of the aesthetics of the game and the rise in strikeouts and the emphasis on power and the all or nothing sort of approach at the plate. Uh, here's what I'd say to that. It is irrefutable, statistically speaking, that for every single hitter, no matter if you're Juan Magaris or J.D. Martinez, that hitting the ball in the air is better than hitting the ball on the ground. Now, hitting the ball in the air does not mean muscling up and trying to drive everything 400 feet, trying to hit home runs. Uh, some guys who have failed to change their swings, that's sort of the trap they've fallen into, where suddenly they're trying to pull everything, they're trying to hit everything sort of over the fence, where all hitting the ball in the air means is don't hit the ball on the ground. A line drive is a ball in the air. Uh, we forget that sometimes. We think in the air, we think fly balls. The numbers show clearly that you don't want to hit ground balls. Even the fastest runner in Major League Baseball, the Billy Hamilton, uh, would be better off hitting the ball in the air than on the ground because nobody is fast enough to have success hitting ground balls and expecting to beat them out. And even if you were, those would be the va vast majority of those would be singles. And the reality is singles don't get you very far in today's game. Now, that said, what baseball needs to figure out uh, as we move forward here, uh, assuming baseball ever comes back and we have a sport still to save uh, in a few years, is what do they want the product to be? Uh, do changes need to be made to inspire more contact? Is there a balance that could be struck? Because the reality is part of why we're seeing this stems not just from hitters trying to muscle up, it stems from the quality of the pitching. The pitching today is better than it's ever been. Guys are throwing 100 miles an hour with ease. You see this bullpen management so that every single pitcher you face is designed in a lab to get you out. It is so miraculous that anybody ever puts the ball in play in 2019, 2020 baseball, that it makes sense to me that the response is, well, we're never going to string together like four hits in a row against pitching this good. So why don't we just try to hit a home run? Baseball has the ability to potentially try to make changes to the game that would incentivize contact, that would incentivize an approach of sort of uh, let's, let's try to bring back some of that athleticism and bring a little more action into the game. That's the responsibility of the commissioner. It's not the responsibility of the team. The teams only care about one thing, and that's winning games. And they, they're doing what they believe is best to win games. It's the responsibility of Rob Manfred in the office of the commissioner to decide what is good for the game in the broad sense. And I do believe Rob Manfred is attuned to this issue. 
So we'll see what the future has in store. Ted Williams is really, in a way, the godfather of a lot of this. And he's not, it's not talked about because he's not contemporary. He's been, he has passed on many, many years ago. He has a book that is probably the best hitting book out there. It's a bit technical, and I'm not sure some of the uh, you know, casual fan will really get into it, but there's even a chapter that talks about, you know, him critiquing Don Mattingly and, and Wade Boggs when they were the best hitters in baseball, arguably. Uh, you know, does Ted Williams not get enough credit here in this whole situation? They were shifting on Ted Williams. There's pictures of it back in the, in the fifties. So it's not like this is all new, so to speak. Uh, yeah. It's funny that we, that people talk about this get the ball in the air revolution as if it's some new thought. Uh, it's not new. It might be new to sort of enter the mainstream, but it's certainly not new. Like you mentioned, Ted Williams was talking about this 50 years ago. The science of hitting came out in 1970. This guy played in the 1940s. He was thinking about hitting the ball in the air. He wrote in the science of hitting that the way the swing is taught, which is to hit the ball on the ground, to slap the ball around, in his mind was wrong. and that The ideal swing was up. And he tried to hit every single ball he ever hit in the air. Uh, and he wrote that in 1970. So to say this is new or somehow radical is crazy. The only difference now is that we have tools, we have technology, we have statistics that prove empirically that what Ted Williams said was right. There's no more argument. No one can say, well, this guy is wrong. This guy is just a freak. This guy is radical. No, Ted Williams was objectively right that hitting the ball in the air leads to better results than hitting the ball on the ground. Uh, Ted Williams knew that. We probably should have listened to him back then. What did you, when you t- write a book, especially when you dive in, it took you a long time to put this together. You put a lot of work into this. You always have pretty much, I would guess I would call preconceived notions or ideas of where this is going. And I'm sure throughout there's turns or there's learnings that you take away and you're like, I never expected that. Or maybe that's the thing you really pulled out of this whole project when you, you know, one day they, they bring up this book, you say, yeah, that's, you know, what it was all about to me. Is there something for you as you went through this and now you take a step back and now it's been published where, you know, hey, that was, I never expected that. I learned that or that's a big takeaway that was a little surprising. What blew my mind and still does was just how, for most of baseball history, just how thoughtless, careless it was when it came to teaching the game and do player development. Uh, it simply was not a consideration for most of baseball history. And even if these people would say they cared about player development, the way they went about doing it would suggest there was so little thought put into how do we make players better. Uh, in fact, I don't think for most of baseball history, even in somewhat recent history, the idea of making players better was a thought. Uh, it was more, okay, once you get to a certain point, you're as good as you're going to be. And if you're not good enough, we're just going to hire somebody else and get rid of you. And the idea that someone could actually be better than he was, uh, was foreign. And you see that in how coaches were hired. Think about what the, what a, a major league coach was for most of baseball history. It was shockingly simple, the criteria. There were basically two boxes you had to check to become a major league hitting or pitching coach for most of baseball history. The first one was that you played in Major League Baseball. If you didn't play professional baseball, forget it. Don't even bother showing up. You have absolutely no chance of being looked at. Uh, the other box you had to check was, are you friends with the manager? And if the answer was yes, congratulations, you're a Major League coach. There was so little thought into it. What are you actually bringing to the table? What are you teaching? What do you know? 
how do, how do you impart your knowledge to young players? Wasn't even a thought for most of baseball history. And it's why when you talk to older players who went through minor league system, they talk about things like being in single A and having a hitting coach, having sort of a philosophy or approach, then getting promoted to double A, having a different hitting coach who would literally say the exact opposite or completely different things because there was absolutely no thought of, well, what is our philosophy? What is our organizational approach to doing things? That has finally started to change. And it's why I think you're seeing more and more players get better than they were before. And I think it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Art Fowler, the old drinking buddy for Billy Martin. That's why he was Billy Martin's uh, pitching coach. I also think reading your, your book, I've always been one that said, well, the hitting coach has impact, but it's really the pitching coach where uh, the teaching or the, or the change really happens. Um, do you hitting coach versus pitching coach? Do you think there's more of an impact in one versus the other? Has the hitting coach position now, because of what's happened with different types of philosophies and uh, individuals coming in the game, caught up? I mean, is there any credence to that mindset maybe over the course of uh, baseball, where the pitching coach is a little bit more hands-on impact than a hitting coach? I mean, the reality is with a hitting coach, with any of these guys, and especially hitting coach, you don't make big wholesale changes to your swing during the season. That's not the job. It's not even the expectation. It's not even possible to make some big wholesale changes to your swing in the middle of a baseball season. We're just trying to grind out and get through it. Uh, it's much more of a job about psychology. It's about uh, sort of helping 13, 14 hitters get through the rigors of a long season sort of mentally. Because it's a long season and it's really hard. Hitting is really hard. And you go through these ups and downs, slumps and hot streaks. Whereas pitching coaches certainly are much more hands-on, like, during the season, helping you with your pitch selection and maybe some brief, simple mechanical things. What we're seeing with like with the book and these people is that what they did was they made changes in the off season. They made these big changes. They went to see these independent hitting coaches and made giant changes to their swing when they had time to sort of do it uh, in the winter. It's very hard to do it during the season. What's the next big thing, Jared? Uh, you, you know, I talked about the arm with Pat, and I thought that was a great book. I put yours in there with the MVP machine. You guys have all kind of looked at on a deeper level some of the big topics of the modern game. If there's a book, maybe you write it. Maybe somebody else writes it. What's the next big thing that we need to look at here, if there is one? Well, look, we, we're seeing sort of the – here's the revolution, right? What's The first thing that's done is that, like, analytics and player evaluation. That is – tapped out the what we were talking about in Moneyball and how to evaluate players every team is doing that to the essentially to the best that can be done and any other breakthroughs will quickly be sort of uh, copied by other teams so that that avenue is done player development was sort of the next thing uh, and now you're starting to see that teams catch up in that department uh, there's less of a, a competitive advantage to be gotten there too to me the next uh sort of breakthrough that a team is going to have that's going to change the industry is health, health management. Uh, how do we keep our players on the field? That is the one thing that everyone is struggling with. Uh, and if there is a team that uses technology or data to better understand the body and how it breaks down or doesn't break down, is able to keep its players healthy while every other team is still seeing all of its players to come to Tommy John surgery, that would be an enormous advancement, an enormous competitive advantage, and would completely change the game. Before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. So the, I know it's a competing paper. The New York Post ran an article about Matt Harvey. I think 
during this pandemic, we're trying to look back and try to break down baseball as best as we can with not regular new stories out there. Uh, but it was really good oral history of his career. I know you were there, especially for 2013 during that crazy rise. I know there was the off the field stuff. Now he's going to go pitching. You know, there's a game, game five and then there's a, now he's pitching in South Korea. Um, he's almost like the Mets version of Mark the Bird Fitterich in, in a way. Not the same. I know that's a loose comparison, but I think there was a lot of anger towards Harvey when he left, especially how things fizzled out. But now looking back, you almost feel bad and sad. I don't know if that's the right thing. I mean, you know, Harvey didn't really endear himself. But when you look back, it's it's almost like a, you know, a baseball Greek tragedy. Uh, what are your thoughts? I don't know if you, you know, because Harvey's been in the news the last couple of days. Is he, you know, has anything come back to you or have you been on the radar with this or have any thoughts? Well, covering him in 2013 was absolutely remarkable. It was so incredible. And I think like like anyone else who saw him that year, you thought you were looking at, you know, the next Nolan Ryan, some guy that was going to be around for a long time and be a perennial all-star and, and establish himself as one of the best pitchers in baseball, the best pitchers of his generation. So it just was, it makes me sad looking back what happened to him. And now that doesn't mean that it wasn't his fault. He did a lot of things wrong. He made a lot of mistakes. And I have no doubt that he would acknowledge that uh, now looking back. Uh, this was a tragedy that was certainly self-imposed in many ways with the bad decision-making uh, by Matt Harvey, but he also had a lot of pressure put on him by the media, by fans. Uh, it's just sort of a sad story, and it's a shame that he will never be the player he could have been, the player perhaps he had a chance to be, and it's just another one of those baseball stories, those sort of what-could-have-been stories. Jared, you've been very generous with your time on a, on a weekend. Be well. I'm hoping to watch baseball soon. Hoping to see more out of you over at the Wall Street Journal and then maybe at a ballpark near you. So uh, be well. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk soon. You got it. Thanks a lot. Jared Diamond, National Baseball Writer, Wall Street Journal, at Jared Diamond on Twitter. Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution. Interesting topic to talk about, as well as uh, throwing a little Mets in there. Matt Harvey, a little baseball. Got a little bit of everything there from Jared Diamond. All right, let's take a quick break and wrap up your listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G. TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, final thoughts. Good stuff from Jared Diamond. Uh, check out Swing King, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution. Another book to get you through. No baseball, no sports. Until whenever that starts for the various professional leagues and for baseball, hopefully soon. So, Matt Harvey, real quick, final thoughts. I And I'll basically sum up Matt, Matt Harvey. If you read the oral situation, the oral history that came out in the New York Post, the takeaway that you should have from that, and I know a lot of people will remember Game 5 of the World Series, 
and question or debate whether Terry Collins should have taken him out. And as critical as I am of Terry Collins and his bullpen management that series, that wasn't the one that I'll criticize him for. No way, because I would have done the same thing. I think you would have been criticized if he brought in Familia and they blew the game, even if the result was the same. I think the criticism would have been worse. You're going to talk about the injuries, and that's fair, especially the thoracic outlet. I don't think we realized how serious that was and how hard that is to come back from. We should have. I think we glazed over that thinking, well, he's the Dark Knight. You're going to talk about maybe the -the off-the-field stuff, and that's fair. And, And that ultimately, that didn't help him, but I don't think that caused him thoracic outlet syndrome. That didn't take away from anything on the field, in my opinion. Uh, maybe it got in the way or it's more so his inability to adapt and adjust to a new way of pitching. And I think the thoracic outlet makes it makes it tough, but I think that played into it. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit where, you know, a guy who's been so used to things coming easy on the field and partying now has to dedicate all this time to basically reinventing himself, and, and that's going to take its toll, and it and obviously takes its hit on some of your personal and free time. But the real takeaway from the Matt Harvey oral narrative, and I will go down, and I will continue to say this, and it just shows that you never know what tomorrow brings in sports. These plans, these rules, these builds for tomorrow they have to be tempered with some sensibility and some ability to go after opportunity. Could you imagine if Matt Harvey wound up listening to Boris, shutting himself down in September of 2015, and either A, maybe the result was the same and he missed out on that run to the World Series. And I don't think the result would have been the same. I think it would have been vastly different. Uh, I think it would have been uh, interesting to see not interesting because the Mets, you know, you don't want to go back in history, but but it'd be, it's an interesting debate to see how that would turn out. And the regret he would have, either way, whether the Mets made it and he wasn't part of it or because of he not pitching, the Mets losing that opportunity. And then what happened after? How the injuries, the opportunity fizzled away. How the Mets have made the playoffs once since then, and it was a wild card game how you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And when you have that opportunity, especially at that point when they were talking about shutting him down in that weekend series in Miami, the Mets had that runaway train started to go right right about you know August 1st, right after Cespedes. And that train, you knew, you anyone who was around watching that live, you knew that train wasn't going to be stopped. Only they could stop themselves. It was at a past a point where the Nats were... The threat. The threat was the Mets finishing it off. Can they finish it off? And you didn't think of World Series back then. It was about winning the division and the first step towards respectability, credibility, and contention for hopefully a three, four, five year period. But once you get in that tournament, you don't know what's going to happen. I don't care if you win 110 games, 81 games, 90 games, division, wild card, whatever. It is a tournament. And it's going to become even more of a tournament if they have their way and they add more playoff teams. All you're going to do by winning a division is going to get yourself some home field advantage and maybe eventually as they expand a buy, Which are big things, but not silver bullets to the World Series. Not silver bullets to a pennant. 
So you should take away from the Matt Harvey situation. Always seize an opportunity. Never throw it back and say, well, they'll be tomorrow. Or, well, it's not on schedule. The schedule, there's no schedule. There's no way for you to know when life is going to take you somewhere. You have to be smart enough as a player, as an agent. You know, the agent could advise. You could you, you have to weigh out, weigh out the risks. David Wright said something recently on a podcast. I think it was The Metrospective. Good podcast by Tim Britton and Pete McCarthy over on The Athletic. You have choices, decisions, and consequences. And you have to live with those things. And Matt Harvey made a choice. He made the correct choice. And at the very least, if he never throws another pitch in professional baseball outside of Korea, he could say he went to the World Series, he won a pennant, he had that period of time, he made some money, maybe not as much as certainly he wanted to, but he made some money. And if he was smart, he's got himself a good foundation for the future. You have to seize an opportunity. That's the big lesson. Reading that, that's what you should take away because that is what I thought about as I read it. Imagine if he sat back and took the Strasburg route. And Boris brought up in that piece, well, look at Strasburg. You got his ring. Well, you think Strasburg was thinking about that at 19 and 31 or 19 and 30 last year? You think that was a shoe in You think that Strasburg was struggling in 2015 and sometimes 2016 and, and how he had that dip? You think he was thinking about that and wishing, hmm, maybe I should have been part of that run? I mean, he's been hurt since then. He's still a risk. Now, nothing's changed. Those extra innings didn't mean anything, in my opinion. Thoracic outlet has nothing to do with RV pitching over 200 innings, by the way. You can't, unless you have a high-level medical study, I don't want to hear that. So, to me, that's what I take away. I also take away no bitterness or anger towards Harvey. The off-the-field stuff, it is what it is. He's a young guy. He was a wealthy guy. He's a guy that wanted to live up the nightlife. Not the first guy. He had a bad break. His health broke down significantly, and he couldn't adapt and adjust. He's the kind of pitcher that needed to bully and overpower players, and he didn't know how to say to himself, it's clear as you read that, he did not know how to say to himself, hey, I got to adapt. Not everybody can. Not everybody could be Frank Tanana that was throwing bullets and BBs and become this junk ball guy that led him into his 40s, his early 40s in his career. Can't be that. Not everybody could be that, so... Interesting conversation with Jared Diamond. You can check out his book, Swing Kings, The Inside Story of Baseball's Home Run Revolution, at Jared Diamond on Twitter. The very, uh, very thoughtful way of looking at what's going on between the Players Association and Major League Baseball. Hey, we're out of time. You can check me out all the time at Mike Silva Media on Twitter, talkingmetspodcast.com. Get the latest and also the archive of various shows. You want to send me a note? Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com and of course you get the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire I'm your host Mike Silva enjoy the rest of your week be back with another Talking Mets podcast soon be well everybody
Nicholson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.